0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Anavarapu.
3: And I'm Alex Diamond.
0: And we are the hosts of this special series.
3: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences.
0: This special series centers the dilemmas tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines.
3: Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
0: Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing
3: from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano-Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
0: And on that note, let's begin.
3: We're thrilled to welcome today's guest, Dr. John Gordon, who, after defending his dissertation in April and receiving his Ph.D. from NYU, is about to start as a new tenure-track assistant professor of sociology at Appalachian State University. John studies violence, gender, and policing in marginalized communities. More specifically, he did 45 months of fieldwork in an urban neighborhood in Medellin, Colombia, to understand how criminalized men use both violent and nonviolent practices to protect community residents, construct peace, and reimagine masculinity. He's published a wonderful article in Social Forces based on this research and is currently working on a book manuscript entitled Vigilant, Violence, Community, and Local Imaginaries of Security in Medellin. John, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on both finishing your PhD and getting hired in a great position.
2: Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm honored to be here and, you know, I just want to thank both of you for doing such a wonderful service, not just for ethnographers, but I think for the social sciences uh, more generally. It's, you know, just a beautiful thing to have a space where ethnographers can talk about the process and, and you know, things that don't make it in uh, to the final product.
0: Yeah, um, I'm really glad that um, the website resonates with you and so many others. And we felt really welcomed in the community of social sciences. Um, So that's, it's great. Um, To start off our conversation, we were both curious to know um, how and why did you become a sociologist and more specifically an ethnographer?
2: So my interest, I'd say in sociology developed really when I was teaching in Chicago public schools, Um, Chicago, you know, was this legendary laboratory? I think for sociological research, for urban ethnography, and though I'd like to say that this is what inspired uh, me, I was actually unaware of, of sociology's history, uh, particularly in Chicago, and so it didn't. Um, you know, my interest uh, emerged. I was in my early twenties living and teaching in West Pilsen, which is a big neighborhood in Chicago that encompasses kind of these micro communities uh, of a few blocks. And at the time, Pilsen was ridden uh, with gangs and many of my students and their families uh, were associated with this gang called Satan Disciples. And I lived about a mile east. And many of my neighbors were associated with the Ambrose, and there was a small set of gangster disciples. And so, uh, the, you know, the, these were the kinds of, of people who I uh, saw on a daily basis, who I was friends with. And, you know, I was seen in both areas uh, as a teacher, a community servant, an activist. Um, I helped, you know, bring people out to the immigration march in the city uh, in 2005. And, you know, on nights and weekends, I would just hang out with my friends. Uh, And in my sort of community, uh, many of my friends were associated with the Ambrose. Uh, And so we would hang out at their homes uh, on the corner. We barbecue at my place. And I was really interested in their stories, you know, their life histories. And uh, they recognized, I think, that, you know, I looked past the violence, the guns, the drugs, and I truly wanted to do whatever I could uh, to help them. And, you know, just in, in sort of hanging out, I came to see that the sort of structural Circumstances that frustrated me as a teacher, uh, trying to help young people, you know, uh, succeed academically, also frustrated my friends, frustrated mm. my students, and impeded their efforts to to kind of live a dignified, financially stable life. And um, you know, I was hanging out with people, uh, many of whom were my age, and you know, this revealed kind of these broader social problems that shaped life on the ground for us in different ways. Um, And, you know, that said, I enjoyed hanging out uh, with people. And this is kind of a key uh, feature of ethnographic research. And it was something that I was good at. Um, And, you know, over time, I, I learned that sociology offered tools for making sense of what I observed on the ground. And I had a close friend uh, who was in grad school at the time. He actually just published a wonderful book uh, based on his ethnographic work in LA.
3: I believe he was actually
2: on your
3: podcast. Um, We know know who you're talking about, David Tree.
2: That's right. And and David kind of helped me see Sociology is a career path, so so that's how I got myself into this mess.
3: <laughs> uh, that's that's really interesting, and um, you know, there's a lot of parallels between the the communities you ended up studying in, in a very different part of the world, and and the, the communities you sort of describe as hanging out in uh, hanging out with in Chicago. Um, so you're maybe we can get into that research in in Colombia um Where you focus on a particular group of of men uh, in, in a marginalized neighborhood um, and these men were engaged in both drug dealing uh, and violence um, and I, your work does a great job it's really nuanced showing you know getting past those sort of stereotypes of of what we might expect uh, you know people who are very conversant in violence to do um and and showing you know that they actually controlled crime in a lot of ways and, and seem to have pretty good relationships with the community. Um, but it raises a question uh, which is you we would expect these people to potentially be pretty distrustful of outsiders and specifically a, a curious American. Um, so John, how did you gain access to this community and, and even how did you explain your project to them?
2: Yeah, so first, you know I, I actually just want to clarify that I can't prove my study participants' extrajudicial punishments of, of uh, robbers and assailants who preyed on community residents actually helped to control crime. Mm-hmm. I would just say that my evidence suggests that this use of violence did, and my observations of it correlated with this sharp drop uh, in violent crime in the community, and and so what I can say is that the men I followed and a considerable share of residents in in this community saw this use of extrajudicial violence to deter would be robbers and assailants, and for some people it offered this sense of justice. Um, and, you know, in other words, the use of violence uh, was seen to contribute to a shared sense of of security in public spaces, depending on the situation uh, was legitimized. And while some residents likely disapproved of violence, uh, all of them wanted to feel safe and none of them ever reported uh, the men's use of violence to the Columbia National Police officials uh, stationed in this community. Now. In terms of your question and and access, I think it's actually important to describe my inspiration for this project in Colombia. You know, I've always been intrigued by uh, the country's history, uh, the ongoing armed conflict, Colombia's role in the international drug trafficking uh, Mm -hmm. industry. Um, But I I decided to study violence specifically in Medellin after getting a small taste of how it can work. Um, I was teaching high school English literature in in an elite private school in Medellin. And there was this controversial book that was part of the 12th grade curriculum. It's called Los Desterrados, written by Mm. Alfredo Molano, who is a known leftist. Um, and you and know, sociologist
3: book, and ethnographer.
2: He, he, yes. And, and, and the book is actually a series of vignettes of people who have been displaced uh, by uh, the conflict, by both guerrilla and paramilitares. Um, so it was, you know, somewhat balanced uh, account. And a few of my students uh, protested. This book told their parents, the parents called the principal, and, and the principal asked me to pull the book and to stop teaching it um, to avoid any problems. Well, I refused. Uh, I, I threatened to quit. And actually, when word got out, uh, several other uh, teachers from the, the U.S. also threatened to quit and you know this played out over the course of the week and that friday on my way home from work i had a, a motorcycle that i would ride up and down the mountain um that friday I was followed by a car uh that parked in front of my building and stayed there for hours wow. and uh you know this was kind of a form of in intimidation and you know, it was scary, but I remember saying to myself, like, you know, wow, mm-hmm. like <laughs> violence and the threat of it are really on the table. It is it is kind of a strategy for resolving disputes? Like this was, you know, seemingly not a big deal, but and you know, I, I just was like, I want to study this problem, um, and so my. First uh, attempt was doing my MA thesis. I was at University of Chicago, and I did an interview study uh, of people who had been displaced from communities in Medellin when uh, political violence urbanized and intensified in the city in the late mm-hmm. 1990s, early 2000s, and interviewed around 25 people um, who had just had horrific experiences with both paramilitary operatives and the militias uh, who were organized and supported by uh, the FARC and the ELN. And some Mm -hmm. of my study participants lived in uh, the community uh, that ultimately became my field site for my dissertation. And one study participant introduced me to a community leader Uh, who was really interested in what I was doing. And we we talked about being able to better understand violence through prolonged systematic research on uh, perpetrators, on their experiences, following them over the course of their day-to-day lives. And he helped me, uh, or he agreed, to kind of help me carry out what was, in his words, a project of insertion, where I would follow, you know, a criminalized armed group. And in 2011, he organized this lunch uh, at his place, and he invited the leaders of, of the group that I followed. He introduced me. He told them what I wanted to do, how I would. Prioritize their anonymity and, and they agreed. Uh, and I formally started field work, I guess, in January 2012. And, you know, this community leader's introduction was crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, he vouched for me. But earning the men's trust actually took years. And I think, you know, the, the historical moment in which I started. Uh, was both scary uh, but fortunate for, for the project uh, because I, you know, entered the field at, at sort of the tail end of this war between Sebastián and Valenciano, who were two cap- capos of the uh, Medellin cartel uh, and who split when Don Berna uh, was extradited. And these two factions went to war Um, And so the men I followed were aligned with one of these factions and they saw me just dig in and stay by their side in moments when this war erupted in the community. Uh, I was always around, you know, I I rented a room uh, in the community and or sometimes I would sleep in the men's homes. You know, I tried. Uh, to live with them as much as possible. And this helped, you know, Uh, I didn't really explain the project as much as I tried to demonstrate it uh, through my actions. But, you know, one other thing that's actually important methodologically is that I noticed uh, the men really start to open up to me when I left uh, to, you know, start uh, at NYU after about eight months. And then I came back
3: Mm. and,
2: you know, that's kind of how my field work played out was a series of research trips where I'd spend, you know, two, three months during the summer, um, um, you know, four to six weeks, uh, over the winter. Um, and each time I came back, you know, the men revealed additional layers of their lives, uh, and so for a few years there, I was essentially glued to the leader uh, of this group, and we're actually still close to this day.
0: This is um, it's so instructive to to hear you talk about your process, and you know, it's clearly such uh, incredibly immersive research that I'm sure we'll all learn a lot from when you actually uh, when the book comes out. Um, you did uh, 45 months of fieldwork over seven years, which is a lot of fieldwork and it's quite a lot in this day and age. So um, why? Uh, how, did, how did you decide how much um, fieldwork you needed to do and how do you think the, the amount of time you spent in the field helped you understand the men and the community you studied? Like, I guess, how did those relationships change over the 45 months of fieldwork that you've done there?
2: Yeah, uh, so... First, let me, let me just say, like, I stayed in the field for such a long time because of my privilege. Uh, I had unwavering support from my advisor, my dissertation committee. I had funding uh, from NYU, from the Social Science Research Council. Um, and, and, and without that, you know, this, this kind of extensive fieldwork wouldn't have been possible. Um, But as you know, as I mentioned, I saw how you know over time things uh, became clear. The men were more open, and and time was was kind of my best asset Mm -hmm. for uncovering new dimensions of their lives that would have remained buried otherwise. Um, You know, one of the most valuable and I think often overlooked advantages of ethnography is that, you know, we observe people, uh, we follow them as they navigate uh, what are often unpredictable experiences of daily life. And, you know, I might be tarred and feathered for saying this, but in some ways this resembles kind of a natural experiment in the research setting. Um, and so over time, right, you have this, uh set of observational data that enables sampling across situations, across time, being able to identify durable patterns of behavior and and significant changes. And, you know, extensive fieldwork is really important for documenting change. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, the first four years of fieldwork were were pretty dark. There was a lot of violence. Um, Had I stopped and exited the field in the, you know, to winter of 2016, I would be writing a very different book, uh, one that might risk uh, misrepresenting my study participants in the community. And so time gave me uh, the gift of watching the men I followed attempt to build uh, non-criminal identities. So when I moved back uh, to Medellin in Summer 2016, I learned that that they wanted to establish kind of a certified nonprofit organization. So this be, effort became uh, the focus of my fieldwork for the final three years. And I was able to uh, watch a group of criminalized men who use violence, who dealt drugs, transform uh, into this community nonprofit um, and and this transition was such a beautiful ending to my time in the field, but it also provided insights into what can drive community transformation and the kinds of opportunities that can help uh, guide people away from from violence and drug dealing and criminal activity. Um,
3: John, John but, what was what was the yeah. focus of the nonprofit?
2: So the the sort of theme of, of their work is combining urban culture with environmental conservation um, and, and community service. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the first big projects of, of the nonprofit was to revamp uh, a creek, you know, a big green space with a creek running through it. Was the site of numerous gun battles, extrajudicial punishments, a lot of violence happened there, um, and they changed it into a nature walk hmm. for residents, for tourists, where you know they would lead uh, walking tours uh, specifically for foreign tourists um, and tell you know the history. Uh, of the community. But they've also started a recycling operation that provides full-time employment for about a dozen people. Um, They uh, do community uh, events, like there's a uh, after-school sports program for local youth. Um, They'll do stuff for holidays uh so it's 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 pretty diverse wow. the the set of programs they're trying to develop um but you know i also think it's actually really important to to comment on you know the fact that there's little incentive for graduate students who are doing ethnography to spend so much time in the field uh-huh. you know a lot of grad students first Just don't have the resources for this, you know. Uh, Again, I was very privileged. And there's also this kind of structural uh, condition that impedes doing this. You know, graduate students who want to get tenure track jobs don't get hired based on the amount of time they spend in the field. They get jobs by publishing in top journals. And so the pressure to publish can actually lead ethnographers in some cases uh, to you know either decide not to pursue lines of inquiry that they would have otherwise or in the worst case to sacrifice maybe reliability and validity of data and you know this is i'd say arguably the greatest threat to ethnography's standing in the discipline but mm. you know the efforts to kind of change these structural issues isn't there. You know, these issues Mm -hmm. that undermine the ability of, of ethnographers to mollify uh, concerns about data quality and veracity.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: Yeah, and I feel like, you know, um, even in terms of course structure or teaching load and stuff like that, it just becomes one of those situations where students in certain elite universities, like your Chicago students don't have to teach anymore. Like they can actually even imagine doing this kind of long-term fieldwork um, without financial costs, as such, because there is funding guaranteed, la la la. But um, it's it, yeah, there are lots of these inequities baked into um, to an ambitious project, which I, I think I agree with you uh, is not uh, considered valuable in the eyes of the job market or, or whatever, like um, and other logistical and practical concerns. Yeah, thank you for that.
3: No and I think just to, to also follow up on, on your reflection, I, you know, I, I think what one thing that, that you refer to is, you know your ability you're not just studying or describing a phenomenon that existed or exists in a particular point in time. you know, the, the fact that, that that level of deep engagement in time is really necessary if you want to be able to describe social change. Um, which makes your project just so much deeper and complex and and more valuable. Um, and I think you know we you're right that that sort of those kind of projects are are more and more difficult and rarer,
2: yeah, no, i I appreciate you saying that because you know, especially when we're talking about um, studying violence and and crime where uh, anonymity i'd say is really important you know to protect the identities of study participants who can get into trouble um and so you know in those sorts of projects uh if if change is sort of even on the table in terms of documenting you know uh the field it's it's on that ethnographer to do so because revealing the field site, the study participants in, in other cases really allows us to see change because other ethnographers can go in and, and continue the research. But when we can't unmask, you know, when mm-hmm. we have to maintain anonymity, um, you know, it's, it's, if it's on that ethnographer who started the, the project.
3: Well, to, to shift topics slightly, um, what, what was a typical day of field work like for you? What, what were, I mean, you said you were living in the community and, and hanging out with, with these men and in particular the leader, but yeah, what did your life look like as you were doing that field work?
2: So this, this actually changed over the course of my field work. Um, I lived, I'd say at night for the first, you know, four years, uh, I had uh, an apartment in a different area of the city uh, eventually, um, but really that first year I spent most of my nights at my field site. And a lot of that time was following the men during patrols of the community when the fear of kind of a rival incursion or attack and street crime. Uh, we're both in the foreground, and I would accompany them on day patrols and and then night patrols sometimes until two, three, or four in the morning. I did what they did. I ate when they ate, and I brushed my teeth when they did. You know, this was actually a ritual uh, during the night patrol. After this kind of late night meal, we all brushed our teeth um, and and you know, just kind of, uh, shadowing them. And I would get back to my room, you know, I had my laptop there, or or eventually when I started spending more time at my own apartment, get back and in private kind of expand on these, uh, jottings, uh, that I had carried out, you know, in the field. Um, when I moved back, Uh, In summer 2016, for 12 or 13 consecutive months, fieldwork was pretty much 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. And, you know, I participated in in the formation of the nonprofit. So I spent a lot of time in meetings uh, among the men, residents, government liaisons, uh, helped out as they organized these community activities that I mentioned earlier these events and was there you know as 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 kind of they unfolded in the community and you know i i have to say this was my favorite period of field work Mm. um because i was able to live during normal hours uh sleep and and times were just a lot better in this community
0: no thanks uh for that that was a very i think um Vivid description of uh, of a typical day of field work for you, but um, I guess a question that I had was that you write about uh, what sounds like pretty disturbing experiences in the field, uh, where these men used violence to punish petty criminals. So, how did you deal or um, uh, deal with this or react to this, and what were the kinds of dilemmas that you had? about writing about this um, about the violence um were there times when it was too much um yeah we just want to get a sense of your how you reacted to all of this in the field as it was happening it couldn't have been easy i assume
2: oh yeah thank you for asking me about this because you know this has actually been the most difficult aspect of my work and I think as a human being uh, who studies violence, you know, it's been really difficult. And I went into the project naively, thinking that my experiences in Chicago had prepared me to encounter violence intimately in Medellin, and I was wrong. Um, And, you know, I often had nightmares Uh, The last one was actually in September 2017, when I -hmm. uh, moved Mm -hmm. back to New York. You know, the project certainly has taken a toll on my mental health. Uh, I've had to do a lot of work in therapy to uh, process traumas, uh, EMDR, EFT techniques. Um, And, you know, I wish qualitative researchers would talk about traumas of doing fieldwork more. Um, and it's not just ethnographers. I, I see, you know, people who do interviews with different, uh, you know, groups, um, really have a, uh, a, a hard time. And they talk about this on Twitter, but I, I wish there was kind of a more formal space for, for people to, uh, discuss their experiences. Um, That said, my study participants, you know, this is going to sound strange, but they were extremely compassionate with most people. And, you know, this was an analytical puzzle for me, but it was also a source of comfort. You know, they went to great lengths uh, to make sure that I felt okay checking in with me regularly. Um, and escorting me when I wanted to exit, you know, violent situations. Um, hmm. But there is this other side of dealing with violence, which is as a res- researcher. And I'd say, you know, there's there's three ways that I've dealt with observing violence. Um, first, you know, and this may seem like a little bit of a cop-out, but this violence would have happened whether I was there or not. And it, I think it's really important to talk about, you know, the idea that I could have stopped any violent act in the moment. I think that's misguided. You know, I, I always told the men uh, that I disapprove of their use of violence tried to steer them away from it, but pressing them too hard on this, mm-hmm. risk compromising their trust and would have put myself in danger. Going to the police would have put me at risk and potentially destroyed lives, not just the men's lives if they were incarcerated, but the lives of their their families. Um, so that's that's one way. The second way is that I think it's unethical, Uh, to sanitize my data. So some ethnographers argue for writing around violence, so as to uncover or highlight other aspects of a given social world that are important for representation. And I, I think this really makes a lot of sense in some cases. But I found the importance of you know, nonviolent and violent findings to be interconnected and accurately representing uh, both violence and nonviolent aspects of this social world required accounting for both. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and third and relatedly, you know, I make a lot of effort to represent violence and drug dealing as only two features of this broader context of the men's lives and of the community more generally. And, you know, my responsibility is has been to represent the men not just as violent specialists or vigilantes or drug dealers or criminalized men, but also as fathers, sons, brothers, neighbors, and as people who who really wanted to belong as dignified members of this community,
3: Yeah, I really appreciate you being honest about this um, and so thoughtful about it, John, because I think you're hundred percent right that it's not it's not something that we talk about um, as as part of the or very much, at least, as part of the the experiences of of the ethnographer in the field, or at least those who do. Who do experience violence. Um, And yeah, I can imagine that it would, uh, it would resonate with, with at least some of our listeners. Um, And it it does with me. Uh, So thank you.
2: Yeah, Um, I was gonna say, Alex, you, I imagine, have had, you know, similar experiences in the field. So...
3: Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I, don't, I don't know this is a time to talk about my experiences, but I, I will say that we, we talked about this a couple of years ago in, in New York City. And at a time when I was, I think, just coming out of the field and uh, just coming out of some, you know, a, a, at least a few stressful situations and, and some things that were um, emotionally disturbing for me. Um, and I was having trouble sleeping and and things like that and it, and it was helpful talking to you about it. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that these are the kind of conversations that that we can continue, both you and i and and sort of as a as a discipline or a field absolutely um and i I think it's really fascinating too, what you said about the men um, who who you describe as people who are pretty conversant in and Comfortable with violence, who who sort of have a past. Most of them, I think, had uh, past experiences in the military or paramilitary groups. Um, but it's really right. interesting that they were they were empathetic to to your um, discomfort, or even worse than discomfort. You know that to to your responses to seeing this violence. Um, and so, I, just another thing that I, I remember from from talking with you is. Sort of some of the surprising ways that these that these men behaved that contradicted uh, stereotypes we might have of uh, like violent macho tough guys, um, and particularly in gender roles as well. Um, so maybe I was I was wondering if right. you could share some of these experiences uh, with our listeners and and uh, tell us how you explain them.
2: Yeah. Um, so the men I followed could ostensibly be labeled as hypermasculine or traditionally masculine men, you know, and and they established traditional masculine competence by using women as props, engaging in vigilante surveillance, extrajudicial violence and drug dealing. They policed each other's manly behaviors and, you know, performances of gender that uh scholars of masculinity and men would expect to see in this context um focusing solely on these moments though would present a caricature of marginalized men who are beholden to preserving their gender status through these hypermasculine performances and i often saw them breach uh, normative expectations of masculine conduct. Uh, for example, um, you know, in, in marginalized communities, we might presume uh, and evidence suggests that men are expected to, to maintain patriarchal authority over the division of domestic labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the leader uh, of this armed group actually did most of the cooking and cleaning at home mm. and you know that might be surprising or unsurprising for some people but for me what was really interesting was that he complained in public about this. Uh, he complained to the other men and he complained to me about how his uh, wife refused to help <laughs> um, and you know the reactions to that sort of breach, uh, of traditional masculine norms, um, was something that I focus on. Uh, you know, and I also watched some of the men breach traditional gender norms by chastising other men for failing, you know, to help their domestic partners or their wives at home. And, uh, this scolding you know, we could consider a, a transgression uh, of traditional gender norms. And some of the men who had been scolded uh, began to rethink these relationships between, you know, their contributions to domestic labor and their own manhood. Um, and so uh, I, I kind of follow, you know, the uh, conditions in which different reactions to breaches of gender norms uh, occurred. And a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, the biographical details of uh, people who breached gender norms and sort of their relationships with their audiences as they did so. Um, And so, you know, ultimately, I, I try to make an argument about how uh, these transgressions of, of traditional gender norms can become moments, depending on the reactions, uh, that create cracks and, and lead to potentially normative shifts in the local gender order.
0: Something that we do love um, hearing on the podcast um, are these behind the scenes sort of moments that you've not really been able to include in your written work for some reason or the other. So could you tell us about a cool or interesting experience you've had in the field that for whatever reason, you've just not been able to write about?
2: Yes. Um, so, okay. I So there's one uh, funny story. Um, you know, my, my mother came to visit Uh, Me and she actually wanted to go to my field site Um, and my study participants, the men specifically I followed, they really wanted to beat my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one afternoon, you know, we went in and and there was a meeting related to the nonprofit and the men had had, uh, prepared a snack for the afternoon, which was common, but um you know they kind of went above and beyond on this day that my mom was going to be there and they made uh bologna sandwiches on Bimbo white bread uh <laughs> which is something I really enjoy uh and also s- special for me they got my favorite Postobón manzana which is kind of a apple flavored soda that's like a pepto bismol pink <laughs> Um, and my mom just does not eat like that, and <laughs> and I could tell that she was going to turn down, and I like pled with her subtly to buck up and eat the food, right? Just to right. not offend the, my study participants who were really trying to please her and, and welcome her, and you know we compromised. She ate the sandwich and passed on the pink soda. <laughs> Um, That is,
0: that's a very endearing image.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that'll make it into the book. And, you know, there's, there's also kind of a one beautiful story that comes to mind that, that won't make it in, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, the first big project of of the nonprofit was the men, you know, revamping this creek that uh, into a nature walk that had been the site of a lot of violence. Um, and, you know, they were thinking about kind of the thematic, uh, you know, decoration, visual, uh, presentation of the nature walk. Um, you know, it is this beautiful green space, uh, that is sort of bookended, uh, and, and runs between buildings. And so they wanted to you know paint the buildings with murals and sort of uh continue that sort of uh you know thematic again decoration in the nature walk itself they were bouncing around ideas and and uh my partner uh you know actually proposed the theme uh that that the men eventually used for the nature walk and they, they loved it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's pretty cool that, you know, my wife was this key consultant for, for mm-hmm. the men's uh, nature walk uh, project, which was the first sort of big project for the nonprofit.
3: So moving, moving to the, uh, to the academic field from, from the actual field uh, something we've talked about on this podcast before um, is the parochialism of the discipline and how ethnographers who study the global south uh, which all three of us do um, relate to u.s uh or western journals uh doctoral programs of study academics etc um so how have you felt as as someone who studies colombia within u.s academia i mean how have you dealt with presenting your work to western audiences uh, do you sort of want your case to stand on its own? Or conversely, do you think that we um, that we should think about how your case can inform social theory that has been based more on a Western context?
2: Right. Well, to answer your first question, I think a lot of this depends on the Western audience, right? Uh, reviewers, for example, have been the toughest in terms of Uh, justifying how a case in Colombia brings new insights to the study of violence in the U.S. I I think broadly speaking, this is a good thing. You know, as you mentioned earlier, Alex, uh, it matters that the men I followed had combat experience and or military or paramilitary training, right? It matters that they were good at violence because as You know, Randall Collins' work shows most uh, people who engage in violence uh, or are in violent situations don't have this sort of competence or or skills in violence. Um, But at the same time, you know, some scholars have written off some of my claims uh, as being specific to Columbia. You know, for for instance, I write about how the men's uh, drug dealing enabled precisely the kinds of relationships uh, and and expectations for regulatory action that survey researchers operationalize as key dimensions of uh, social cohesion and shared expectations for social control or collective efficacy. Um, And, you know, the, the collective efficacy literature suggests that the presence of gangs who have, you know, economic interests in the drug trade can impede uh, the regulatory impacts of collective efficacy on violent crime. In other words, you know, gangs can pressure community residents into tolerating nonviolent crimes like drug dealing, which can in turn incite violence and. Uh, these, you know, the, the exchanges that residents get, gang protection, and economic support. dear uh, Venkatesh, Mary Patillo have shown how these networks of reciprocated exchange can hinder social control, and particularly uh, the control of violent crime in, in some marginalized communities. Well, my findings complicate this. You know, the, I found evidence that uh, suggest gangs and residents can develop mutual trust and a willingness to work together to improve public safety. Um, and in in my field site, you know, drug markets facilitated this, um, created spaces of of pro social interaction where people could reinforce trust, reinforce. Expectations for social control, and for the men I followed, this project of, you know, building a safe community imbued their lives with a, a sense of meaning, purpose, dignity, um, and so, you know, in some cases, economic motives for criminal behavior uh, may not be as influential, in as you know, these opportunities for people to be respected and dignified in the communities. And a, a lot of scholars just aren't convinced uh, and, you know, point to how my data reflect structural conditions in Medellin and Colombia. And, 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 you know, at the same time, this is an important uh, question uh, to, to answer. It's also frustrating because, you know, the classic ethnographers like, you know, Suttles and Horowitz have found similar dynamics in gang community relations in Chicago, right? Um, which is, you know, in the global north. And but it's also frustrating because uh, my findings, right, offer uh, support for an alternative approach to violence for prevention and and community well-being that go beyond sort of the puni- punitive criminal justice and repressive policing that's characterized um, intervention in, in marginalized communities in the U.S. Now, to answer your second question about, you know, my case, should it stand on its own or, or you know, should it, should it be seen as, as one that can inform social theory? Uh, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and in the sense that, you know, yes, my case should stand on its own uh, as a contribution to the literature on violence, crime, and gangs uh, for the reasons, you know, I just described. You know, it can be seen as a case of a community uh, that legitimized the use of extrajudicial violence and whereby this process of legitimation undergirded. Uh, the transformation of a criminalized group of men, right, who used violence and dealt drugs and became a nonprofit. But at the same time, um, you know, as sociologists, we're tasked with generalizing and generalizability and how our work can inform, you know, this body of social theory, which is itself rooted in a history of Western imperialism, colonialism, and american exceptionalism and you know one of it's really important i think you know especially right now like one of the great lessons of of the pandemic right is that you know american exceptionalism mm-hmm. is just a mere myth right you know despite the presumption about the strength of state institutions in the U.S. relative to other countries like Colombia, for example, Um, you know, uh, the response here and the institutional logics uh, of the response to the pandemic in the United States uh, Mm -hmm. were not exceptional, right? Uh, And, you know, initially the response uh, in Colombia to the pandemic was more impressive, especially, you know, in the beginning, people uh, were adhering to the lockdown orders. And there was sort of greater evidence of people being on the same page, whereas here, you know, uh, not everybody took it seriously. And so the infection rates here um, were skyrocketing, while we didn't see that in Colombia in the beginning. And it was only until you know, when the vaccine became available and it was unevenly distributed mm-hmm. ac- across, you know, the globe, and um, that we saw these kind of greater declines in, in COVID cases in the US relative to other countries. And I bring this up, though, um, just to say that, you know, I, the skepticism I've observed about the lessons. Uh, the Global South can teach us about problems in the United States is a legacy of American exceptionalism, of you know our privilege uh, to ignore the fact that in many ways the problems we see in marginalized communities in the United States share the core elements of the problems we see in marginalized communities in Colombia. Or any country in the so-called global South um, and acknowledging that isn't you know it it, it it forces us to sort of reimagine our national identity but it should also force us to reimagine you know our relationship uh, as as social scientists to the history of this, you know, social theory that at least in sociology we we have to deal with regularly.
0: Thanks so much, John, for this really insightful um, and illuminating conversation. I I learned a lot, and I really look forward to reading your book and um, all of the writing that's going to emerge from this deeply immersive and uh, and yeah, uh, really uh, interesting fieldwork um, experience. I did want to know, uh, what are you working on now? And uh, I mean, I assume you're working on turning the dissertation into a book, but are you working on some other new research? And what can we expect from you in in the future?
2: Well, first of all, let me just say, thank you for asking such great questions. And I've, you know, this has been really fun. And it's just an honor to be a part of, again, this great service that both of you are doing for ethnographers um, and, and the social sciences. Um, right now, so I'm not starting another project yet, I'm actually working on my book and it it is, it's tentatively titled Vigilant Violence, Peace and Community in Medellin, mm-hmm. Colombia. Uh, and so the overarching narrative traces this group of violent vigilantes that evolved into a nonviolent nonprofit organization. Um and it shows right how the legitimation of the men's use of violence uh and how their drug dealing uh operations sowed the seed for this transformation in and residents warm reception of the nonprofit. So my efforts right now are are focused on you know getting a complete draft of the manuscript. Um, out there, I'm trying to get the book under contract with an academic press. So if any editors are are listening to this, I'd love to speak with you. Um, and I, I I do have two articles uh, in in the pipeline, um, but otherwise, I'm really just getting ready to join such a wonderful faculty in the sociology department at Appalachian State University. And spending time uh, getting my syllabi updated uh, to, you know, offer the the sort of experience that that my students deserve. So that's kind of what I'm working on that
3: right now. That sounds
0: amazing. And again, congratulations on this job. Um, your department is lucky to have you, and I'm sure this is going to be.
3: Yeah, thank thank you so much for coming on, sharing all these experiences, John. Um, I'm sure they will be as as interesting to our listeners as they have been to us and useful in fact to um to ethnographers um and yeah best of luck with all the projects that that you just laid out uh but particularly the the new job the move i know all of it's uh exciting um and and not easy uh so best of luck with that
2: well thank you and thanks again for just uh, providing, you know, respite and, uh, such a wonderful, fun, uh, experience speaking about this stuff and, and hopefully we can do it again in the future.